those guys on the ambulance, if you're going out on 20 calls or so, they're making more life and death decisions every single day than most guys ever even think about in a career. I can't tell you how many guys we've had that have committed suicide. And a lot of that, we can attribute that back to, you know, the stress of the ambulance and stuff like that. And when I came on, I, I'll be honest with you, I had a guy, after my first fire, I went out and I was kind of hosing the junk off my, my firefighting coat. He goes, man, don't do that. That's bad luck. I didn't wash my first coat for eight years. But then we started realizing uh, when you get to that point when the fire's out and you're starting to clean up and all that burnt stuff is on the ground, we're walking through it and we're slogging through it and stirring up the dust and we're breathing all of that stuff in. So. You know, lung cancer, uh, you know, larynx, um, uh, we're finding out kidney, brain tumors. Uh, all the, uh, We've got about 11 different kinds of cancers that we're starting to find out that firefighters are getting uh, probably 14% more times than, uh, than most people just in, in the civilian world. And, and another stat that we have found out that most firefighters, probably about 60% of them, uh, if they did at least five years, they'll probably develop cancer sometime in their lifetime. A guy asked me, he said, if you could go back to the 40-year firefighter, if you could go back and tell the guy your first year, give him some advice. I, I still remember in that interview, I told him, I said, you know, I can teach you things to be a better firefighter. But if I don't teach you how to be a good person, I failed. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together, we can grow. We can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together, we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, ATO listeners. I'm Joe King. I'm here with the legend, Misty Van Curen. Stop it, Joe. Sergeant Josh Hertel. I want to give a quick shout out to former Dallas police officer Chris Wood. He was a badass at Southeast and narcotics and now lives in California with his beautiful wife Penny. He is a big ATO supporter and Bridging the Divide supporter. And I just want to say thank you and get your ass back to Texas. Thanks, Chris. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm excited to welcome on today's guest. He grew up in Terrell, Texas, hometown of actor Jamie Foxx and Terrell State Mental Hospital. Well, we know him as Eric Bishop. Eric Bishop, that, all right. Yeah, there's a long story behind <laughs> yeah. that name, but that was that was his name before he was Jamie Foxx. He was a hell of an athlete, I know that. He was, he was pretty, well, I don't know, our football team sucked back then. Yeah, he yeah. stood out. Yeah. <laughs> graduated from Terrell High in 1980 and was hired by Dallas Fire Department in 1981. He has nearly four decades of paramedic and firefighting experience in Dallas, Texas. He's married to Lori, father of Blair and Joshua the president of the Crotal Memorial Foundation. It's my honor to welcome on Dallas Fire and Rescue, David Lindsay. Thanks, David, sir. Man, thanks I'm for coming glad, on. No, I'm glad to be here. This is welcome, exciting. Sir. 
Yeah. Well, don't don't get too excited. We're pretty we're pretty low tech. Oh, <laughs> You're okay. gonna be- well, that's all right. Hey, <laughs> you ready to get into this? You bet, yeah. man. Let's go. You grew up in borderline East Texas in Terrell. Um, when did you decide to join uh, the fire department? Well, it was kind of a weird thing. I went to uh, college uh, in Tyler, which is even further east, but uh, I was a finance major. And I'm sitting there looking around, you know, these classrooms, and I'm sitting here going, man, I'm going to be stuck in a cubicle with all of these knuckleheads. <laughs> and uh, I just – that wasn't for me. I was always been an outdoor guy. I liked to camp, hike, backpack, do stuff like that. So I was home uh, on break, and my dad, who was – uh, he ended up doing 31 years with Dallas. And uh, he was just like, hey, have you ever thought about taking the fire department, you know, entrance exam? So – I went and took it uh, probably early summer and got hired on in August of that year. So here we are. It's better to sit in a cubicle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Second generation. I, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, no. I, I, I mean, nothing against Senior you guys. Blood. Nothing against you guys in blue, but I think I had the best job in the world. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> probably do. <laughs> hey, if I could turn back time. Yeah. All right. Why'd you uh, pick DFD? Did you apply anywhere else near the hometown? You know, uh, it was, like I said, it was just kind of one of those deals. My dad had uh, suggested it, and I had a lot of respect for him. Just He was a, he was just a real stand-up guy when I was growing up. So uh, uh, just uh, trusted it. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know that I was fit to be a fireman. But when I got to the academy, kind of started understanding the brotherhood of firemen. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is this is where I want to be. But never never applied anywhere else. I did a little volunteer uh, fire department work when I was in Terrell uh, there because that's where I still live there. And uh, but no, just uh, Dallas. That was that was my home base. Well, you hired on in uh, in eighty one. You graduated in eighty, so people can do the math. Uh, what was the what was the culture like in D- in DFD when you hired on there in the eighties? Well, you know the 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 ambulance program had just come in in the seventies, and I mean I don't know if y'all remember back the uh, the old uh, you know TV show of emergency. Uh, yeah. when you walked in, when you literally, when you walked into Parkland hospital as a paramedic, man, I mean, you kind of walked on water out there. I mean, that, that it was, the program was so new and, and people just weren't used to, you know, paramedics walking into their house. And, you know, in Dallas, you're dual trained, you're a fireman first and then a paramedic, but, uh, you're going to ride the ambulance about 50% of the time while you're active as a paramedic. But, uh, man, it was, it was awesome. I mean, you didn't have a lot of the politics back then, uh, you know, that we do now, um, a little bit simpler, uh, time for me i mean like you said i came on the fire department at 19 so when i got out to the fire station you can imagine i mean they they told me hey run through that brick wall okay i mean i might be there you know 10 hours later still trying to bust through it but those old guys took advantage of that young kid oh, i bet they used and abused. yeah well dallas in the 80s was that that was the jr ewing bobby ewing boom, oh, yeah. the oh, big man, hair was, the oil pumping oh smu yeah. the pony express the pony all ex- the, yeah, excess, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It was. Where was your first station? Uh, I was actually at 42s, which is on Mockingbird Lane, right in front of uh, uh, Lovefield Airport, uh, right there. And what was crazy about that was uh, my dad had been assigned there. He was a chief driver at that time. And when I was born, there was an old guy named Neil Hunter that was out there. And I remember going to the station and visiting, and that guy was there, and he drove the fire engine. Well, when I get my first assignment, guess who's still there? 24 years later, that guy is still there driving that same fire engine. So I kind of had a buddy when I showed up in my first assignment. Yeah, yeah. You went to paramedic school in 84. Mm -hmm. Can you describe to the listener why that that class and and certification, why that's so important? Well, if you look at it back then, we didn't realize how big a deal it would be. But if, like, fast forward to today – 
probably 65% of the runs the fire department makes are EMS related, whether, you know, and, and it could be, it could be car wrecks, stuff like that, but it's still, you're getting an ambulance with it. So back then, um, man, I kind of thought it was cool. It was just, you know, cause you're normally riding with four guys on a fire engine or a fire truck and you've got an officer that's in charge of you, but when you're on the ambulance, there's just two of you and you yeah. kind of get to make the decisions where you go or, uh, you know, and you're, you're the whole city is basically your district. So hmm. the, the neat part about it was, was it was, like I said before, it was so new, um, that those guys had a lot of respect. Um, and to be honest with you, the nine one one system wasn't there yet in the eighties. So it, it, it wasn't really getting abused, but, uh, um, but man, paramedic school was one of the hardest things I'd ever gone through. I mean, already had, uh, you know, almost associate's degree underneath my belt and that paramedic school was way tougher. What, what percentage of uh, today's firefighters are, are also paramedics, would you think? Oh, probably two thirds of the, Oh, really? yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they have got, when I got on the ambulance in 1984, um, just the, the, the need for more ambulances has grown every, every single year. So they probably got twice as many ambulances now as they did in 1984. So probably went from about, uh, I mean, you've got 59 fire stations and they've got about 40, 45 ambulances in the city of Dallas. So, wow. Well, it, it seems like you'd want to make yourself more valuable. You oh, know, it, it and, does. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it we, was, and, and and it's a it's a it's another chance for those guys because you know we've got an entire EMS division, so promotions, different stuff like that. Um, there's there's a there's a lot of stuff, and and you know there's a lot of guys that do off duty work uh, using that paramedic certification. You know, it's a it's a utility that's founded on something good, but I know just talking to some firefighters, whether they be here or not, I think it's not comical, but uh, you know, you, one could say that the ambulance is probably something that's abused now. Oh, yeah. Overused, and you guys don't have enough of them. Right. You know, especially now with some of these stations that had some of the issues after, like, the tornado mm-hmm. and whatnot. I don't know if they've ever rebuilt that one that was up there off of Northwest or wherever that was over there on Preston on the Royal up there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they ever did, but, yeah, I see them all the time, especially being out there at the airport. And yep. they are, man, they are used for everything oh yeah you really don't think about it as a police officer going on these calls you know when you need an ambulance when you somebody needs it you call it but i know you guys get call after call after call after call after call so i can only imagine when it picked up speed back then oh yeah like when the word got out hey i can call somebody and then come check my blood pressure oh yeah well you know the 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 busy ambulances in dallas right now they're they're for them to make 25 calls in a 24-hour period is not that's not unusual i mean they are there's literally I remember back when I was on the, the ambulance still, uh, I never made my bed up. I just had what I called my paramedic blanket, and I just threw it over there, and I had a pillow on the bed. And if I could, i catch an hour or two here or there. But, mm. uh, you know, when I was on the fire engine or the fire truck, normally make my bed and stuff for the night. But when I was on the ambulance, I didn't even, didn't even bother. Yeah, there's something very mystique about the firehouse. It's kind of like a bunkhouse or yeah. a men's locker room. There's just oh, yeah. there's something that's very mysterious oh, so, from perspective I see. yeah from <laughs> from a female perspective because that's your home away from home right. yeah but do you remember any good stories about being in the in the i can't tell you those no oh, i can't no. so it is no no i mean it really if and and you're you're right if you i always tell i always tell people that you know are kind of asking those type of questions i said if you take like saving private ryan and combine it with animal house the movies <laughs> that's about you know kind of what it's like because you never know when it's you're you know you're looking you know life and death in the face or 
you know, you're, I mean, there's, there's so many stories out there. And like you said, we live together, you know, a third of our life cause you're there 24 hours. You're not just working, you're eating, you're showering, you're sleeping together, cooking together, everything. So it's, it's like living, uh, together. And I, I'm trying to think of the, there's a, there's a ton of stories, you know, I mean, the, you know, firemen and, and, and police officers are a lot alike. I, I remember when I first came to work, my wife and I had, uh, we had dated about two years while I was on the job and, uh, before we got married. So she kind of knew, you know, okay, they're going to, they're going to do some things. So don't get too, uh, you know, far, uh, you know, to one side <laughs> or the other. And I, I remember the first time she didn't, she didn't fall for it, but, uh, you know, back before cell phones and everything, we just had little, you know, landline phones in the fire station and, she calls up one time and and uh, I don't think we had gotten married yet, uh, but uh, she called. And she said, "Hey, is David Lindsay there?" And they said, "Yeah, hang on, he's out in the parking lot talking to his girlfriend. I'll go get oh. him." Oh, <laughs> man, <laughs> <laughs> Un- unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. But luckily, she she kind of knew from you know my dad being on the job and everything. So so it was she took it. She took yeah, they're a bunch of assholes it. too. Like oh, the, but that's <laughs> what I say. We we both blair, wear blue for a reason. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we both have got that sick personality. I think. No, you have to. Do. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism. Oh, yeah, honestly. exactly. Uh, you were a paramedic for nine years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you become a full-time firefighter. Can you describe that transition? That one, um, it's a it's a difference between kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of elation uh, a little bit because you're so busy on that ambulance. And, and you got to think about it. I mean, those guys on the ambulance, if you're going out on 20 calls or so, they're making more life and death decisions every single day yeah. than most guys ever even think about in a career. Um, I can't. I mean, you know, one of the worst shifts I ever had uh, on the ambulance, I only made six calls. But uh, uh, two of those were dead on the scene. Uh, two of them were uh, people that we had that died on the way to the hospital with us, and then two of them that uh, we, we did CPR from their house all the way to the hospital. So – um, when you get off and you just go to the firefighting aspect of it, um, it's a lot of guys are way happy. Um, you know, it's, uh, um, as you just take a lot of that stress off. I mean, you know, we've had, I can't tell you how many guys we've had that, uh, uh, have committed suicide. And a lot of that, we can attribute that back to, you know, the stress of the ambulance and stuff like that. Cause you think about it. Um, I mean, they're, they're intubating people, putting IVs and stuff in, they're doing, EKGs, cardioverting, uh, different stuff like that, that the stuff that they do in a, you know, in an emergency room. And here's two guys out here that have somebody's life in their hands in a moving truck in a move. Yeah. yeah that's another, that's yeah. a whole nother story itself. Yeah. But, uh, and then, you know, with the, with the fact that those people have to go to the hospital and then, you know, one of the things that <clears throat> I always dreaded, um, you know, uh, I worked over in Cedar Springs and Oaklawn area. I worked in South Dallas. I worked in Oak Cliff. Um, you have a bad shooting or something like that. When you get done with all that, you're not done because you've got to go back and you've got to clean that ambulance up to be ready for the next one. So I can't tell you how many times we have mopped and hosed out blood out of the back of the ambulance at the hospital. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that is just, it's just a constant wear uh, on you. Nerve wracking, you know, going through the eighties when the AIDS epidemic became alive and well and then i'm sure everybody was terrorized you know of having to go back there and wash out blood and whatnot and i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't want to do any of that not because of that just in generalities you guys had to deal with a a lot well what was funny about that i was i was at station 11 which is at cedar springs in oakland you know Mm -hmm. right uh right in that part of that district 
And they came out weekly and updated us when that first came out. I mean, you know, nobody knew what it was. Yeah. And then they thought it was just, uh, you know, to the gay community. And then they came out and, you know, drug abusers uh, and different things. So we were getting something different every single week. And you have to remember, back in the 80s, you're talking about, you know, what was it like on the ambulance and stuff like that. I remember we used to take a bottle of hydrogen peroxide and we'd just take the lid off and screw a spray uh, trigger on top of it. And you'd have blood all over your uniform shirts and everything, and you just come in there and hang it up on your locker door and spray it down with that peroxide, yeah, and yeah. it just dripped down on a towel or something, <clears> go <throat> in the washer and start over again. And you know, man, when AIDS came along, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe what those uh, those those gloves that we should be wearing, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> so yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, because that that was just killing folks. Oh yeah, and, and, oh, and it, it was, was a long, a long, painful death, and, and it was just. Ugly. I mean, we're talking about COVID right now. And I can't imagine during the 80s how – because it was such an unknown. Yeah. Unknown, exactly. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Unknown. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How Very. much has your gear changed over the years? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did, did that time period have some change in, in, in your protective gear? When I, when I first came on, our helmets were – they were so, I mean, they were cool looking, you know, they, they, uh, but, uh, but they were, they were just made out of it like a hard, uh, composite plastic type stuff and everything. And I don't, I mean, there was an impact cap inside of it and stuff and I'm sure they were, they were adequate, but, uh, you know, our coats were a lot longer. We didn't wear the, the pants that we wear now, what we call bunker pants. Right. Um, we just wore what we called three quarter boots. They were, uh, basically boots that would come all the way up to your hips, but you could roll them down. Uh, you know, hmm. if you weren't usually, if you weren't inside a fire, but I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into a fire, uh, back then. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, man, my crotch area is getting a little warm here, you know, and, it, and not because of anything, you know, exciting, yeah. but, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. but, uh, but you know, you, that wasn't really, it was exposed. I mean, your, our coats were longer back Golly. then. They would go down to about our knees. And when I first came to work, the fire department didn't give you a flashlight. Uh, they didn't give you firefighting gloves, and we didn't have the hoods that go over our heads like we do now, the Nomex hoods. We didn't have those. Hmm. So, and, and to this day, I, I can literally take my fingers and rub them right here. I got burned so many times right here on my jawline where our mask would stop and your you collar would come it. up. I can't feel that. So that's just it's one of those weird things. You know, back then, we didn't know any different. It's just what it was. So the kind of gloves, I mean, would, would did you just wear like those oven mitts, like to take out a hot hot pan with the – you're, you're, do, do you ever remember the old orange fireball gloves that used to the, the mechanics and stuff used to wear? Yeah. That's what most guys wore. They gave us cotton gloves now. Cotton when, gloves. Yeah. When I came, when I came out, uh, we did find a uh, fire department distributor uh, that had uh, Kevlar gloves. Mm-hmm. And most of us bought, but you know, back then, back then those things were, heck, in the early 80s, they were 60 bucks. Yeah. And man, you. Firefighters and cops are poor. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. When you're going through the academy, you're not making much money. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So that was, that was a big investment. Hmm. Yeah. In, in almost four decades of firefighting in major city, you have any, you have some critical incidents that, that you went through that just really stuck with you and rattled you and, and took, took a while to recover from if you, if you recovered fully at all. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, I was one of those guys that, you know, when you, back in the 80s, when you came on, the, the, the answer was, hey, man, suck it up and do your job. Sure. And, I, you know, you probably still hear some of the guys saying stuff like yeah. that nowadays. But I do remember uh, before I even was a paramedic, I remember we had, uh, we had made a run uh, somewhere around Cedar Springs area over there. And, and uh, uh, as we're going down there, uh, the guy that our officers, he says, hey, uh, he says, get your firefighting coat on and get a, a tool. And we were going on a medical call. 
And so I'm here. I am a you know young rookie, twenty years old, and I'm like, what What are we doing? Well, we get off, and before we go in the apartment, he says, "There's a dog has just attacked a baby." Oh. And so we get oh, in wow. there, and this this uh, this lady had a dog that uh, had just literally picked the baby up out of the crib, chewed its face off, and put it back in the crib. And today, the thing that still stands out in my mind is I still remember that lady going, "Now y'all are not going to do anything to my dog, right? He's okay." You know, and you just you you think <laughs> looking back on that, I'm like, man, what was she thinking? But mm. probably the, the there's there's actually two that really stand out in my mind, and and I know most firemen and police officers when it involve when it involves kids, uh, that's a yeah. big deal. Well, when my my first child, which was my daughter, was three months old, uh, I had my first pediatric CPR. Sid's uh, case, we go into a house. And the lady says, "Don't know what happened. We just went in there to check on him this morning. She was all purple and stuff." Well. Um, I was, I was riding with a, a bunch of guys that, uh, that I had worked with before and I didn't even realize till we got to the hospital, but I wouldn't let anybody do CPR on the baby, but me. And we got there and they were like, you okay? And I go, what? And they go, we tried to, you know, let you, us do CPR and you wouldn't let us. So the, the funny thing about it is my wife still gives me a hard time about this one. She says, yeah, you remember when you called and said, wake Blair, our daughter up and, uh, I go, I don't remember that. She says, yeah, she's been asleep for about 20 minutes for her, for her afternoon nap, and uh, you made me wake her up. So I was like, well, it was just one of those deals, young dad, uh, young paramedic and everything. And then the other one, this one probably stands out more in my mind than anything. We had uh, we were kind of over in the Urbandale, uh, Pleasant Grove area yeah. over there, and we get a call for uh, you know emergency OB, which is you know possible childbirth. But we walk in, and, we, and from the door I can see a kid standing up in a crib crying and just screaming and i'm like what in the world and the door was wide open and we could hear this voice saying come in well we get to the back and the mom uh is three kids are already at school she's got one in the crib and she's trying to deliver one we get in there she's delivered the head and that's mm. it um but yeah. through the delivery process she has choked that baby so we're trying to get the baby delivered because we know that you know it, the baby's not breathing. We can tell he's he's starting to turn blue, um, but he was uh, he ended up being ten pounds twelve ounces. But we, me and my partner, tried to do CPR in that situation, literally between her legs. Wow! And the bad thing about that was my wife was pregnant again uh, with our son, and she was about eight months pregnant. So that one that one always that it one has always parallels kind of, between what you had going on personal. Oh life yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, and that's a big thing that we're you know we're seeing now because I work. Uh, I'm on our critical incident stress management team, and we, you know, we go out and debrief peer to peer when guys have bad runs like that. And that's one of the things we <coughs> notice that it really affects guys when you have some kind of parallel mm-hmm. uh, going on, like you're talking about. But that one, that one really stood out in my mind because even to this day, I can remember uh, being over in Baylor uh, emergency room and seeing that kid when they finally did get him out, um, little muscles in his arms, he just the healthiest looking kid. But he was he he was dead because she 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 never did call anybody when she started going into labor. She thought she was she was okay. Could do it herself and yeah. And then we get there and have to do CPR between her legs. Everything so. Yeah, and you still have a very distinct visual of that. Oh, I can see that baby like I mean just like that baby's laying on the table down there. I mean literally can see that, and it just. Uh, no, when you're when you're talking, I can see like I could actually see the listener can't. Obviously, but I could see like a physical effect when you were talking sure. about that. Sure. Wow. Sure. And how long ago was that? That was uh, probably 1987. Yeah. It said that, that's what people just don't realize 
this shit will carry you. Carry, it's <laughs> exactly. it's going to stay with you until you you die. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I think that myself personally, I made the mistake. I never wanted to bring that junk into my house, so I never really. I, you know, I told my wife sometimes, hey, you know, had a bad run, had a you know had to do CPR on a baby or something like. But I never talked about it for thirty years. Just and build up. Just build up. Well, and then when we, I, I know we'll get into the Todd Crudle story here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But after that, I kind of started talking to my wife, and I said, "Let me tell you how I'm feeling." And it was it was kind of funny. Things got better uh, yeah, after it helped. that. Oh yeah. Oh, tremendously. That was a, that was a big thing. And I think now with our peer support programs, and I know mm-hmm. y'all have got psychologists, and y'all have got different teams also on on y'all side that. Uh, you know, you got to start the conversation. You got to you got to talk about it, or it's going to eat you up. Which taboo back then? Hell, it, oh yeah, it, yeah, oh yeah. But it's still <clears throat> it's still uh, interesting how something as simple as effective communication between you and your wife, which obviously is you know your your partner in life, so it's easier to lean on them. But just that alone mm-hmm. can help release some of that. There's when you talk about the baby, we talk about all these these other incidents on this podcast and sometimes it gets frustrating because you think to yourself you know like does the city even know does the city management even know or does anybody you know anywhere outside of these departments even know what is carried by individuals no matter what uniform you wear right as you walk through these you know as you do your job as you walk through your career the stuff that's just carried on you know to to really to, to fulfill the mission of public safety for a city Right, yeah, it's oh, kind exactly. of. Well, they don't. I don't think it's hard for leaders that are outside of our organizations to really understand what what we go through mentally because they don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. They, right. You know, they don't care at home and they don't see it. They see it on the news. You know, right. or they hear or right. they hear a briefing about it. But for the people that actually have to see this this kind of crap right in front of them and make split second decisions, uh, right. that you know that. May or may not, you know. I guarantee you probably, you probably still think of ways that maybe you could have done things better and had a different outcome oh, yeah. uh, oh, with oh, that definitely. baby. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't no one's fault there. But I, I I've been in situations. I'm like, damn it! I just wish I'd have done this. Right. You know. Right. Oh yeah. There 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 has been so many calls over the year that you know you you get back to the station. And you just run that inventory list through your mind. Okay, what did we do good? And what did we do bad? And that you talk about, uh, do these people even know? One of the things when I retired, um, I don't know if y'all get this as police officers, I guess, unless you're working the night shift all the time. But um, I told my wife after about a month, I said, I did not realize there's people out there that sleep all night. And that was a big thing for me. I mean, my mental health got better because I was getting eight hours of sleep consistently. Because, you know, even when I would be at the fire station, even if I wasn't going out, if the ambulance was going out or somebody else was going out, I'm, I'm waking up all night long. And um, so when I get home the next day, I'm still tired. And, you know, even though I've got that day off, it's, it's still affecting me. And when you talk about that, how many people just take that for granted and don't even realize what we're doing? Uh, you know, if you're working the graveyard shift for you guys, I mean. I don't think people can understand. Even um, you saying it, 20, 20 runs in a night. I think a lot of people have the perception that firemen sleep in their cozy little beds. And the firemen that we've talked to within our city, they don't sleep when they're on shift. Oh, no. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of them do. I mean, and it, especially those guys that are on the ambulances nowadays. No, no, they don't. They don't even eat. 
I can, I can tell you my my one of my favorite stories. There was a guy that that uh, used to be at a station. I rode ambulance with him a little bit, but he was at another station at the time. Kind of a know it all, a bragger guy, but uh, um, not not a lot of people liked him back then. But uh, we were I was riding the ambulance over in Pleasant Grove, and we had literally left the station that morning at six forty five. Uh, you know, normally relieve guys at around seven o'clock, but we were there early, so we went ahead and took the call. At probably about seven thirty that evening, I was stopped at the McDonald's on Buckner and Elam. We were sitting on the back of the ambulance trying to grab a Big Mac, and uh, we called another run. We hadn't been back to the station in over twelve hours, and this guy comes on the radio and he says, uh, "Hey, we'll take that run off of you guys." Well, they came past us. So we knew they were close to us, but they, they, they knew we hadn't been back at the station all day long, and we were on our 14th run at that point and hadn't eaten in, in over 12 hours. So uh, There's something special <clears throat> about food with firemen and eating in their, in their kitchen. Is there, is there, were you a cook? I cooked at one of the stations after I got off the ambulance rotation for about six years. I did it full time just because just it was, you know, you see those guys on the ambulance. And plus, I was at a busy station most of my career. Uh, I retired out of 37s up at uh, Greenland Park Lane. So I just kind of thought, you know, well, that's, that's kind of my gift to those guys. I'll You yeah. don't worry about cooking and stuff like that. But uh, we've got some really good cooks in the fire department. But I'm going to say that tongue-in-cheek because we've got some really bad ones too <laughs> is, is there a favorite meal that's like nostalgic for you that you remember oh chicken fried steak okay great <laughs> man when i came to work every every yeah every breakfast was fried eggs potatoes biscuits and gravy and bacon and i mean you know now you walk in the fire station you're probably going to get oatmeal and fruit and yogurt stuff like that They're, these guys are trying to eat a lot healthier a lot younger and stuff but uh, uh but breakfast was the one i always remembered but chicken fried steak and gravy Misty and I used to be be on SWAT together, and I I, I remember when we would uh, run these doubles or triples, and we'd plant them at the fire stations as a mm-hmm. mid ground. And man, we'd go in there while they were cooking. Oh yeah, God, it was hard to concentrate. It smelled so good in there all the time. <laughs> They'd offer you soda. We'd be like, "What are you guys yeah. gonna do with that steak yeah. now?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. My grandfather is a retired Oklahoma City fire. And he was oh, the, really? he was the station house cook. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, we've got we've got a couple. One of the guys that's on our board at the Crodel Foundation. His name is Milton Williams, and he's chef type. I mean, he literally uh, has he he's won competitions, been to New York City wow. and stuff. He cooks so well, and I'm like, I don't know if I could eat you know that well at the fire station and function, you know, right? <laughs> All right, I saw in your bio uh, that you drove the truck. Mm-hmm. Can you? Describe the listener the training and the importance of driving the truck and how hard that is. Because I, I couldn't drive that thing. Well, you know, a lot of people don't understand truck and engine in the fire service. Uh, the engine, I don't. Yeah, the engine is the the smaller looking vehicle that it carries water and it carries all the hose, and then the truck is the big one that carries the the ladder on top of it. And then it carries a lot of equipment that we do extrication, ventilation, different stuff like that, and everything. So. Um, but the truck, the last truck that I drove at 37 Station, now you're talking about 12 foot wide, uh, 48 foot long, and it's got a 103 foot arrow on the back, and it weighs 70,000 pounds. Okay. Is that easy? Is that easy to drive through the Chick Fil A drive through? <laughs> it, it depends on if you got your license. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have, how how I have, much does that cost? Yeah. That, that went well. Well, now most of those are about 1.1 million dollars. When I yeah. first came to work, a truck like that was probably three hundred, three hundred eighty thousand dollars. But uh, uh, once you once you outfit that thing with all the equipment and stuff on it, it's it's probably close to two million dollars. So you have forty years of experience. 
you got to tell us what's our what's the best truck that you ever drove. The best truck. Yeah, that you, that your favorite the the one that you felt like was the the best piece of equipment. Pro- probably the last one we had when I was at because uh, normally they try to they try to replace those pieces of equipment. Uh, an engine will make more runs uh, per month than a than a truck company will just because they have different uh, roles. Uh, so the uh, um, the engine companies, uh, they try to replace those about every 8 to 10 years. And the truck company, they, they try to replace those about every 12 to 15 years. Like right now in Dallas, we're in a pretty good spot where they're getting most of them right on schedule to replace. But really, uh, when you get a new piece of equipment, uh, man, that's like a kid in a candy store. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you guys if you get a new squad car or something like that. But uh, but but the, the good thing about it is the technology. Because every time, if you think about it, if you're only swapping out about every 10 years, you got ten years worth of technology to catch up on, and like uh, you know, when I first came to work, um, we used to have to like generators for portable lights. We had to, an old generator you had to take out by hand, and you had to carry it to wherever you're going, and then you just hook. We had uh, basically extension cords in bags, and you would hook them up and hook them to the lights. Well, now, <laughs> now the 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 generator is on the apparatus; it's on the truck, and you've got a reel that has got like two hundred fifty foot. Of extension cord and you just reel that thing off like you know and uh, you just hook it up and it's man it's it's so simpler so uh uh probably the my favorite one is just the last one that we had just because the technology was so much better and, and everything the equipment was more you know i mean i don't know if you police officers like us firemen we're always thinking of ways to try to make it better you know guys will sit out there in the apparatus bay sometime going well you know if we just do this it would be so much cooler than what we're doing now so they could always be done better, but there's also a learning curve whenever you get oh, a new yeah. piece of equipment. Yeah. yeah, you know, by the time you perfect that yeah. new equipment, then they come out with something better or, or new. Oh, yeah, you got to yeah. learn. Well, and and, and again, mm-hmm. I think especially when you're driving and stuff like that, I think experience uh, is a big key because you know we oh. would we would go out and train. You know, we would go out to our academy and do driving course and stuff like that. But but like in my district up there in 37's uh, district around up there. I mean, I could tell you where the bad dips were. I could tell you where, you know, you're fixing to, you know, you got to slow down or you got to be in the right lane or you got to be in the center lane or so, you know, it's, it's, you just kind of learn those things. Learn the feel of it. Oh yeah. And I I think that's kind of, uh, in general in the fire service, I think experience is probably the best teacher. It's in policing too. Yeah. Experience. You can sit through all kinds of classes and go through different trainings, but in the back of your mind, you know, it's training, but Mm -hmm. the real deal and the real experience is, uh, what you learn the most from, Mm -hmm. um, is driving the truck is that a task that that sought after or people try to get away from it no actually it it, it kind of depends you've got guys that are, are kind of you know on that fast track they want to be an officer they want to be in charge and stuff like that uh, but then you've got some guys that they they're they're mechanically inclined uh, they and and really you have to have a lot of common mechanical knowledge if you're going to drive one of those because like if you're pumping you know a, a fire engine uh, you've got a 1500 gpm pump on that thing and you've got you know, a thousand feet of hose out there, you've got to figure out how to get all that stuff from a fire plug to that fire engine and then from the fire engine to the fire. So there's lots of hydraulics, lots of math and stuff like that involved. So a lot of those guys, uh, they, they strive to be a, a driver, um, because they don't really, they don't ro- really want to be, uh, you know, riding on the back end, but they want to have a role. But, uh, a lot of them take a lot of pride that, that they feel like that they're kind of the center point. Uh, you know, of all the activity, especially if they're driving a fire engine. Now, a fire truck, uh, there's so many different jobs on a truck. Uh, you know, like you may be inside pulling ceiling down. You may be on the roof cutting a hole. You may be inside looking for, 
you know, victims that, that you don't know where they're at and it's hot, it's smoky and the building you're in is on fire and you're sitting here thinking to yourself, what am I doing? But, uh, um, the driver role, there's a lot of guys that they, they relish that there's some of them. It's just a step, you know, up to chief or captain or whatever they're wanting to do. But, I mean, I was always one of those guys. Uh, I wanted to be the first guy through the door. Um, I had guys when I was going through the academy said, Oh, you'll be an officer one day. And man, after I got out the station, I like, I'll never be an officer. Don't want to, don't want to do it. Cause I wanted to be where the activity was. I got to get this in. Try to do it a minute ago. <laughs> How many times did you guys watch the movie backdraft? Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's funny. Well, you, it's, I wanted to ask it, too. Yeah, it's, really? it's, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's you funny know. you say that because, you know, when those guys go in and you, you see all of this stuff, it, inside of a fire is so exactly opposite. I mean, you literally, you could put your hand on your face mask and you could not see your hand in front of your face. So everything we do is by feel. Uh, and, and, you know, as you get some time on, you kind of learn to listen for certain things. Like I could literally, by the end of my career, I could go into a front door. And if I would just take a couple of seconds, I could tell you which side of the house the fire was on just by sound because you would hear certain sounds that you would know, okay, that's a fire burning. Uh, but the funny thing about it is, is uh, like uh, you see, uh, I guess it's Kurt Russell. He goes in that fire. He's got his coat open, you know, his, and, and they were wearing those boots. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. saw those little rubber folded boots. Folded down? Yes, folded down. Those are what we called those three-quarter boots. And I had a lieutenant at the time. He was exactly like that. And he was sitting there going, that bullshit, you know, it's so it's so fake. And we go, that's you right there. And, you know, mm. he would do exactly that. So, uh, but the stuff you saw around the fire station, the guys having to cook, the rookies having to cook that meal and, you know, and them giving them a hard time, that – there's a lot of there was a lot of truth in that one, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, uh, you know the fire scenes and stuff like that a little little bit far fetched. Yeah, we had Chief Beal on here. Did you listen to his episode? I haven't listened to his yet, but yeah. but he I know Eric. That, yeah, yeah, I know as Eric. He was trying to exfil that house. Is yeah, he had to work yep. solely on on feel. Right. Yeah. What, what was that one show with? Uh, yeah. With, uh, Leary, that remember that firefighter rescue show? me, rescue me, yeah. That one, <laughs> yeah, that one, that one went around the firehouses. Oh, big man, they, everybody. Matter of fact, I had there was a couple of stations that I had friends at that they they would literally they wouldn't play cards, they wouldn't play you know anything if that show was on. Everything at the station stopped. If you get a run, well, you go ahead. But everything at the station stopped, and they were going to watch that show. Damn, so, yeah, that's cool though. I mean, yeah. that's one of the that's one of the few series that actually focus on, right. on firefighters right i mean there's plenty of cop shows to oh yeah tv history yeah who did you say yeah. was the station that the station that listens to us 21 21 shout out to 21. yeah shout out to dfr 21 yeah the guys out at left field yeah you were at the cedar springs station that's yeah, the I oldest was... station in the city right no it's not well well no, cedar spring yes the one down in cedar springs in oklahoma yes okay that that, that is the oldest one it still has the Still got the poles yep. inside. Yep, <laughs> and brass. it's it's what's funny if you, if you go well, one of them one of them is brass. There's a story behind that because there's four poles in that station. Three of them are not. And back when uh, the World Wars were going on, they came in there and they took three of those out to supply the war effort for ammo. Wow! And there's one pole that's in there. It's brass. So, uh, um, so that that's that's a lot of people don't know that. And when I was there. Uh, back in 1984, we were, they were going through a remodel, but uh, it had a historical marker on there, so they had to kind of they kind of had to uh, keep the you know the structure the way it was, and then they had to uh, uh, just kind of build around it. So it was a lot different when I was there. Um, when I first got there, if you went to where the truck hole was and you looked straight up in the ceiling, there was like a trap door, 
in the attic. And I always ask the guys, I said, what is that trap door? And they said, well, we'll take you up there one day. Well, you went up there. That was where they used to drop the hay down for the horses that ran out of that when they had oh, horse-drawn wow. horse drawn engines. So that was that was the neat part about that station. And that, that station back in the early 80s, it was wide open. I mean, we left the doors open all night. Nobody bothered us. And it was yeah. just it was a fun place. It was they a fun that place. That guy likes to steal your ambulances nonstop. Yeah, that we, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. we've had a couple of those. <laughs> well, this is – I think I read this is the – 2022 is the 150-year uh, anniversary of the DFR. They've been, they've been around longer than Dallas uh, PD. Really? Now I didn't yeah. know that. Part. I didn't know that part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you talked about many critical incidents that you've been in and four decades of uh, being paramedic and, and uh, fighting fires in Dallas. I want to take you to an incident on August 14, 2011. Mm. Uh, can you describe this incident and how it changed your life? Um, Plum Grove, uh, South Oak, well, kind of, kind of West Oak Cliff, right off 408 over there. Um, I had a cousin named Todd Crodel. Uh, he had made Lieutenant in the fire department and he was working at that station, loved his crew, loved working in Oak Cliff. Uh, well, he was the guy that went through the roof that day. They, uh, uh they had a fire, uh, fire had gone, started in a, a downstairs apartment. It had worked its way into the attic and, uh, he and another guy had been given the assignment to go to the attic and cut a vent hole. Uh, to kind of let the you know smoke and the heat and everything out, so the guys below them could work better. And um, I remember this one vividly because we worked on the same shift, and I had been I had taken the first eight hours off that day, and it was a Sunday. And when I came in, uh, we'd made a run on the truck at my station, and uh, uh, we came back. Well, I remember one of our guys came through and says, "Hey, uh, who did they just transport to Parkland from that fire in Oak Cliff?" And I'm sitting there going, "Hmm." I said, "Well, hang on." I said. I've got a family member that works down there. Let me just give him a call. And so I start dialing his number, and I go, well, he's probably at that fire. So didn't think a whole lot about it. Well, probably 30, 40 minutes went by, and then a little while later, another guy comes in, and they go, who is the lieutenant on fifteen or on 26 engine? And I just sat down, and I knew it was my cousin, because at that time we were starting to get reports that uh, he was bad. And uh, so here I am at work, and uh, um, my lieutenant comes over to me, he says, hey, you need to go to Parkland Hospital. I said, no, 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 hang on. We don't know anything yet. And he says, no. He says, get out of here. He says, if we have to ride short, he says, we'll hand, we'll take care of it. But you need to be with your family. So uh, probably, I don't know, probably about five minutes later, I ended up calling one of the guys down at the alarm at our dispatch center. And uh, just so happened, the guy that picked up the phone, really, really good friend of mine. And, and I said, hey, Monty, this is David. And he said, he's gone. And... Uh, so he kind of he kind of knew you know what I was calling about. So I I do I take my lieutenant up on I drive out to park and I here's the weird thing, my family is probably talks more than any family <laughs> out there from top to bottom. Everybody in our family, uh, we we talk a lot. Um, from the time I was driving from Greenville and Park Lane to Parkland Hospital, not a single one of my family members were answering their phone. Uh, finally got a hold of my dad, and I just told him I said, Hey, Todd's at Parkland he got hurt. I said, I don't know anything. I, I didn't tell any of them that I already knew he had, he had passed away. But I said, I'm heading that way. And I said, get a hold of your sister, uh, who my dad and Todd's uh, mom were, were uh, brother and sister. So um, so as, as I'm kind of working through that, I get out there. Well, then I remember walking in the door at Parkland, and uh, two of the deputy chiefs that were there knew our connection. And one of them just rolled his eyes, and he said, man, I did not even think about calling you. So... Finally, we get uh, we get all the family notified, 
his wife had left the house to go wash the car, um, um, and they, they had a hard time getting hold of them. But the, uh, one of the battalion chiefs finally got uh, uh, in touch with them and, and got them on the way out there. And, and then the the tough thing for for me was uh, Todd had a, a younger brother, my other cousin, and he was actually uh, – uh, he's a minister for First Baptist Arlington. He was doing a, uh, a youth weekend in Amarillo. And so we had to try and get him back. And what was so crazy, uh, we were trying to get him on a flight to come back to Amarillo, and he was just fixing to head to the airport. I think Southwest had, had either made a seat, made room for him on a, a flight or something, and then out of the clear blue sky, some guy shows up and says, hey – uh, we've got a doctor that, that uh, uh, his son is a police officer, says, you need to go with him. He had no idea where he was going, so he just takes his stuff from the car he was getting, and he gets in this other one. Well, this doctor had a private jet and took him right to the airport. He got him home in 45 minutes, and so that was that was kind of the cool thing. But uh, but then we had to – we kind of had to go through, uh, you know, the funeral uh, that week. That was kind of a – that was kind of a tough week for us because uh, Todd's wife, uh, um, they were just, we're talking about the ultimate family. They had two kids uh, at that time. I think uh, Kate and Caroline were 9 and 11. Um, and it was it was tough. It was tough on Kelly. She had a she had a really hard time that week. But uh, but our family, like I said, we're, we're big. Normally we have Christmas or Thanksgiving or something. You know, there's like 70 people over at somebody's house. So we're we're always, always together. And, uh, uh, again, we, we rallied together. But – uh, there again, the fire department family. Jeez, uh, I y'all been to y'all been to officers' funerals? We're the same way. I mean, a matter of fact, I I think the firemen kind of even overdo it a lot of times. We just we're we're so so much there, and uh, to for my family to see the traditions that I had seen my whole career, um, that was what was uh, pretty neat for me. But the and I guess the downside of it was the day we buried Todd was my thirtieth anniversary on the fire department. Wow, how long had he had? Uh how many years of service did he seven, have? Seven, seven, a little over seventeen, almost eighteen years. Yeah. What did this incident inspire you to create? Well, there's a little uh, group out there called the Crowell Memorial Foundation. Uh, it was it was kind of interesting because we were kind of um, we were just kind of trying to figure out what life was going to be like uh, without Todd. Um, um, I still remember his brother uh kurt was asking so many questions uh, you know why did this happen did somebody do something wrong did he do something wrong and i remember the guys taking me out there to plum grove they walked me through the whole thing and uh if you see where he fell through the roof um it literally was basically the reason he he didn't go all the way through the the ceiling was because of six direct tv cables he got tangled up in those in a soffit uh, over a bathtub and uh so so as we're we're talking about all this stuff, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, a lot of people in the community come out and want to help, want to recognize and stuff like that. And I know, I know, uh, Todd's family, uh, kind of got worn down a little bit by that. So, uh, about two years later, um, Todd's battalion chief, a guy named Kenny Moore, he came in and, uh, he just, he called a meeting with, uh, uh, about probably five of our family members and uh, about three of the guys that were had worked with Todd, and he said, uh, "I, I want to do something where we don't forget Todd." So we we're kind of sitting in the room. We we're like, "Well, what do you got in mind?" And you know, at this time when he when he says this, it kind of gets my wheels to spin, and I'm like that guy. You know, I mean, probably would have been on all kinds of ruling if I was a kid. You know, but my, my ADHD uh, kicked in if I've got that diagnosis, but. Uh, um, he said, well, let's do some scholarships. And uh, 
we kind of all looked at each other and I said, you know what? I said, chief, I said, I'm not trying to disrespect you, but if we're going to do this, let's do it big. Let's, let's do something where just by our actions, Todd's going to be remembered every single time we do something. So luckily for us, we had a, a former firefighter that is now an attorney and she helped us drop the paperwork. Uh, we formed a nonprofit and, uh, we started, we started doing stuff. We did some, uh, events, some conferences, sold a bunch of t-shirts, different stuff like that to raise money. And, uh, as we got to moving forward, we were, we were able to help some, some people. We were able to, uh, to help some line of duty death families. Uh, we were able to help, uh, some of the families of firefighters have been critically injured, you know, similar to Eric Bill and, and, um, uh, we, we, we do give out scholarships, man. That was one of the original ideas, but, but also we put a little clause into our mission statement that we just wanted to be available to help with whatever way. So, and I, you can call that a catch all clause or whatever you want to, but we didn't want to limit ourselves. Well, you know, if somebody came to us and said, Hey, you know, my husband got a cancer diagnosis and we've got to go through, you know, chemo treatments for a, a month in MD Anderson, you know, well here, let us pay for the hotel for you. You know, little, little things like that. We just wanted to be able to be available. So, um, so moving forward, we, uh, had heard about this group out there called carry the load. And, uh, you know, we knew that, the assist the officer was was part of that and we kind of started making some phone calls around and we were like you know what the heck let's just apply well we got accepted the first year we, we applied and that was in uh, i think 2014 and we've been partners with them ever since and uh, uh what's been neat about it is um we've just made ourselves available to them and we've been able to help fire departments all over the u.s i uh, just got through with a a guy that uh, uh passed away and and his son was only 16 years old and um they didn't really know what to do for their 16 year old, his kid. And so we called them and helped them get a trust set up. We helped them get a scholarship fund set up and just, just started, you know, kind of walking them through and not uh, really doing a whole lot of uh, financial assistance on our end, but just kind of walking them through uh, what we had been through uh, as far as what had happened with Todd and, you know, and all the kind of the love that was given back to us. So uh, we're, we're eight years uh, into it and, I'm not really sure of the numbers, but I know uh, probably a year or two ago, we'd spent over half a million dollars in assistance oh, wow. uh, to families. That's where, amazing. Where can listeners go? To, where, where can they go and uh, look up your uh, the Crotal Memorial Foundation site? Uh, www.crotalmemorialfoundation.org, or we've got a, a Facebook and a Twitter page, either one, uh, and it'll take you to it. And if you're a Dallas Fire Department family, you've got a senior in high school, we're accepting applications right now. So I'll throw that pitch out there. But, yeah, uh, please do. Yeah, but uh, uh, that's uh, – and, and you can donate or you can ask for assistance uh, on that site. And, uh, matter of fact, right now we've got three different families that we're, uh, we're working with. Uh, one of them we just, uh, we just had a guy uh, – Actually, had two families in the in the last two months uh, that had suicide, firefighter suicides. Yeah. Uh, we're helping both of those, and and uh, we've also got, like I said, the scholarship application. And a couple of years ago, uh, we realized that they're not everybody's going to college, and we even found out a lot of our firefighters have uh, special needs kids. So we created a scholarship for special needs uh, kids, and so that's one of the things that we're we're working with right now. So. Um, but uh, it's just been a neat organization, and, and the neat part about it is our board is made up of half uh, the guys on it are firefighters that worked with Todd, and the other half is our family. So, that's great. So that's what's cool. You're also doing something for education and prevention. For our listeners out there, I don't think they understand um, the toxins that you guys are exposed to within your career that present problems later on in life. 
And we talked about that a little bit earlier, but can you elaborate on that so our listeners understand that sometimes the problems don't start to present themselves until later on after retirement right. and you've been exposed to all these things? Right. Yeah. Well, how much time have we got? <laughs> no, I. Uh, as long as you want. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was funny. I say funny. Um, I mean, I I'm one of those guys that I go to church. I mean, it's just one of those things. I've got a strong belief in God, and and uh, um, whenever Todd passed away, we had uh, our chaplain's office was just kind of we had half of them were moving out, and half of them were just starting to move in. So nobody uh, really was there to take care of his benefits uh, paperwork and stuff. So I mean. It just got dumped in my lap. I mean, I remember a guy from our Dallas Firefighters Association just came in and said, hey, can you handle this? And I said, well, man, I said, i got a telephone. I'll call people. So um, fast forward six months later, we've got all of the benefits for Todd's wife and everything. And and uh, then the next firefighter we have that dies in the line of duty is Stan Wilson, and I do his wife's paperwork. So kind of getting to be you know pretty well versed in this and so somewhere in there right after stan wilson passed away we had had a guy that died from cancer uh in 2007 well what i didn't know uh his wife had been fighting at workman's comp court uh to get this classified as an on-duty injury which it's it's state law since 2007 that if you have a certain type of cancer that it is job related through the carcinogens and stuff that we breathe or absorb through our skin or, or, or whatever way we get it. So uh, they won this case in Workman's Comp Court. Well, there's some other benefits that are out there that we had done with our other firefighters. And so I get a call from a man named Tom Taylor, and he said, hey, can you file the state benefits for this you know, young lady that lost her husband to cancer? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I don't mind doing it. I said, I've never done a cancer case, but we'll give it a whirl. Well, that kind of was like in April of that year. Well, I remember she got approved in November uh, as a line-of-duty death. So uh, she got all the benefits just like Todd's wife did and everything. But the thing I vividly remember about that, making this long story longer, um, when she came to me, I told her, you know, I'm going to need y'all's marriage you know, license, and I'm going to need your birth certificates, your kids, and all this stuff, and stuff you just had to – uh, to have to uh, <coughs> file the paperwork, well, and I said, if you got any medical records, well, I should have, I should have kind of focused that down a little because she brought me an entire box, and uh, uh, one of the things a lot of people didn't didn't know at the time was I had a brother who was a police officer in Terrell, uh, started out in Dallas, but uh, uh, he he moved with a friend of his to Terrell uh, to be a police officer there, but he died of, of a brain tumor at the age of 35 years old. So I'm looking through um, this guy, this firefighter's cancer uh, medical records. Well, his cancer is in exactly the same place that my brother's was. Hmm. I just kind of closed that folder up and set aside, picked the next one up. Well, this guy's brain tumor that he had, and he had to go see a neurologist. He was the same neurologist as my brother's. I open up the next file. His neurosurgeon was the same. The person that signed the death certificate was exactly the same doctor as my brother's. So I just told the lady, I said, man, good Lord put me here today. I couldn't walk away from this. I get struck in the head by lightning or something. But uh, uh, but that kind of started uh, where I was at. And what, one of the things that we found out, if, if you go back to uh, what we call legacy construction back when they built, uh, you know, buildings, apartments, houses, stuff with real lumber, um, we didn't have a whole lot. To worry, uh, you know, about then if wood burned, it was just it was a natural process. It burned. It was still it wasn't healthy for you, but it's not like pressure treated lumber today. And you know, uh, so 
somewhere in that process, I got involved with the Firefighters Cancer Support Network, and I started doing some instruction for them, trying to teach the guys how to protect themselves, how to wear their gear all the time, how to wear their uh, self-contained breathing apparatus all the way through our overhaul period. Because uh, I'll be honest with you, I was one of those guys that man, I was I was gonna I was gonna look good in front of those old you know firefighters. I was gonna take my mask off when they took theirs off, even though snot's running down my nose and I'm crying, uh, you know, because of the uh, smoke that's still lingering in the air. But then we started realizing. Uh, when you get to that point when the fire's out and you're starting to clean up and all of that burnt stuff is on the ground, we're walking through it and we're slogging through it and stirring up the dust and we're breathing all of that stuff in. So, you know, lung cancer, uh, you know, larynx, um, uh, we're finding out kidney, brain tumors. Uh, all of the, uh, We've got about 11 different kinds of cancers that we're starting to find out that firefighters are getting uh, probably 14% more times than, uh, than most, you know, people just in in the civilian world and and another stat that we have found out that most firefighters uh probably about 60 percent of them uh if they did at least five years they'll probably develop cancer sometime in their lifetime even after they retired and, and we're starting to see a lot of those numbers pop up in our retirees uh right now well it's just it's a <clears throat> shitty and dangerous job yeah. but it's got to be done but hey the new protective gear that's come out within the last 15 20 years is is that help i know we're always, you know, innovation and, and, uh, and the new products that come out. But what have you seen help the most? The, I think one of the biggest things that, that we have seen is cleaning our gear. Uh, yeah. In Dallas right now, uh, they're, they're starting to put what we call extractors or these great big commercial uh, washing machines in the fire station. So if we go to a fire, we can take them back and we can put them in there. We can clean them properly. And uh, then we can we can you know have clean gear to put on. Now one of the things that Dallas did, and uh, I, I ought to give a shout out to several of our council people, but because we 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 just politic them hard to get us a second set of gear. So every firefighter in the city of Dallas right now has two sets of gear. So if they go to a fire, they can come back and put their dirty gear in the in the cleaner, clean it up, and they can put on a clean set, and while that other one is getting taken care of. So. Um, that's been a big deal for us. Uh, we do a thing called on-scene decon, which you literally wash your gear uh, kind of with a spray hose and a spray nozzle on the scene so you can get that uh, all those carcinogens and stuff off of there even before you get back uh, in the apparatus. And there's there's kind of a couple of catchphrases called shower within an hour. You know, you always want to get back get that stuff off of you. Um, one of the other things that's really uh, starting to uh, – um, kind of be nationwide and prevalent all over the place uh, u.s and canada specifically is not wearing our gear into the fire station uh, you know when i came on it wasn't anything to walk into the kitchen sit down i've got sure. i've got these firefighting pants on and i've got all of this soot and junk all over me well now we've got signs on the door it says no bunker gear beyond this point and that just basically means you can't wear your firefighting gear uh, when i first got on you set your boots and your bunker pants right beside your bed and those things you know and and when I came on, I, I'll be honest with you, I had a guy after my first fire, I went out and I was kind of hosing the junk off my, my firefighting coat. He goes, man, don't do that. That's bad luck. Nah. I didn't wash my first coat for eight years. There was no telling what was on that thing. Just and, crawling with cancer. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and like I said, didn't know what it was. But one of the things that brought it after 9-11, uh, those guys in New York, yep. that's they started showing up with diseases. And then all of a sudden – uh, you've got the International Association of Firefighters going, wait a minute, if they're getting that from this, 
what else are we breathing in? Yeah. And we talked earlier, Missy, you and I talked about uh, a car. You go look at a car, you know, the, the, the vinyl seats, you know, the, the chemicals, oil, you know, uh, refrigerant for the air conditioning, all the stuff in there, even the anodizing process they do on the metal to make the paint stick, that's hazardous when you catch it on fire. So uh, and think about this is the other thing a lot of times because uh, I have to go to workman's comp court and testify a lot of times to make judges understand what we face. Think about a dumpster. We go out on dumpster fires in the fire department all the time. You have no idea. Yeah, is no it kidding. paint? Yeah. Is it wood? Is it dead bodies? I mean, you don't know. You don't know what's in there, but we're we're sticking our head in there and we're breathing that stuff. The the younger uh, firefighters now, I, I would imagine they're a lot more receptive to the wearing the gear and, and adhering to the new rules as opposed to the old heads. Because oh, yeah. we had we we deal with similar with with uh, older officers, they kind of stuck in ways. Mm-hmm. But with these new with the new rules, the new protective gear, after a while, it would just be second nature, and they won't know any better. Yeah, so it's going to be a great improvement on that. We're, we're hoping, we're hoping so. But uh, I think, like we talked about earlier before we started this, I think it's going to be a generation, of course, uh, before we really get. Because you know, I mean, I was one of those guys when I started seeing the numbers. I bought in immediately. Uh, we had a we had a captain named Randy Wilman that came down with stomach cancer that eventually ended up dying, but he bought in from the minute he got his first cancer diagnosis. He started researching why he got it, and he even helped us make a video. and he, And I remember on there. He goes, guys, this is different. He says, but it's so much better. And he said, there, he said, there's no reason that we should be dying because we're not paying attention to what we're doing. Yeah. Any improvement's better than no improvement. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's baby steps. And and y'all know how it is with any city government. It comes, it it all boils down to dollars and cents. Yeah. And you know, we spent. I don't know how many. I think they spent over eighteen million dollars uh, for a set of gear, a second set of gear for all the firemen. So, but that was one of those things. It was, you it's know, necessary. It is. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. It, we're talking about changing of equipment. I don't think the civilian population understands how much firemen and paramedics get assaulted by mm-hmm. the public. And so we've had to adjust to body cameras. How do you feel about a fire, a firefighter or a paramedic wearing a body camera? You know, that's one of those things when we saw you guys starting to wear them, we, you know, we I mean, I'll be honest, we, we're uneducated on that side of it. I mean, we get it. Um, there's, I think there's a time when it's very appropriate, it's very helpful, and then there's other times um, I, don't, I don't know what the outcome of that would be. Um, I think it, there are times it would help our guys. If nothing else, it would make them mindful of, you know, what they're, what they're seeing and, you know, what they're doing. It's being recorded. And we all know that guys act a little bit different when they know they're on camera. So, you know, that's one of those things. I was always one of those guys that, uh, I mean, you know, if, if I had an officer that told me, hey, we're going to do it this way, man, I'm going to do it that way every time. I just tried not to bend the rules so that way we didn't uh, – there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any discussion about, well, did you do it the right way or did you not do it the right way? And I'll be honest with you, I got in fights when I was – I mean, sure. I still remember a guy at uh, – a barbecue place up on Greenville Avenue, a homeless guy from New York. He thought we were supposed to take him to Parkland to give him a shower. Well, next thing I know, he's got me in a headlock from behind. And, I mean, it ended up okay for me, but I was thankful you guys showed up pretty quick. So, yeah. so uh, Firefighters yeah. have to, to do that a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, wearing a camera also can be used as a good training tool. Oh, Going back bet. and seeing uh, mistakes made or, or improvements that you could have made. Oh, yeah. 
Well, and I think that's one of the things where I, I was always so appreciative that here in Dallas that we work so well with you guys uh, because, I mean, you, y'all look at y'all's job one way and we're kind of another. There's a lot of similarities, but, um, I mean, I'm not strapping a gun on my hip to go to work that day. So that was – I always appreciated you guys being around. And, and now with the, the camera stuff, it's, uh, you know, it's technology. It's, it's getting to uh, a point, though. You know, they've got uh, – what is that program with y'all? Uh, I saw it. Uh, right Care. No, it's uh, where they have – you guys have been equipped with some tactical gears with some ballistic vests oh, yeah. well, and helmets. Yeah. Uh, where, who, who was it that got shot up there on Channel 1 not too long ago? Uh, the video, the house video showed the firemen coming out there providing cover for the officers to come back uh, to see cover. I can't remember who it was. One of them got shot in the leg or got shot in the ankle or something mm. like that. But anyway, the whole point being is, yeah, you y'all are being equipped with that and being oh, yeah. taught in different various ways of how to respond. First, it started with us with uh, Alex Eastman and sure. Jeff Metzler. And then that evolved mm-hmm. into, hey, these firefighters are constantly being put in these situations where right. you guys would be not in the, uh, whatever they called it, not the hot zone, but not the cool zone, the warm zone, where right. you're right. not going into where we have shots fired, but you will right. stage outside yeah, on active of that. Shooters, these yeah. individuals, yeah. yeah, have that gear now, and right. that's great. Well, so, and, and, and my understanding is, every, I mean, because I know we got we got bulletproof vests and helmet before I left. Every every single fire, every position that's riding out that day, because I don't know if y'all knew this, one of the reasons that the, that on the active shooters, when we were doing our training, when they're sending the uh, the, the active paramedics in there to, to extract those people out, and then you've got guys like me that weren't an active paramedic, I might be in the cool zone just to take them to where they're getting transported. Uh, but I think it was one of the uh, uh, shootings maybe in the Philippines or somewhere, one of the airports. Uh, they had cameras all over the place, so they were able to watch that shooting. But what they also saw in that was that uh, there was like six people that ended up dying there just because they bled out on the floor. Mm-hmm. They'd been shot. They were they, they probably could have survived it, but nobody could get in there and get to them mm-hmm. quick enough. And you guys are doing your job uh, trying to you know keep everybody else safe and then i think they uh, that was one of the things that was relayed to us when we started doing our training on active shooter if we can pull them out get them out of your way where it's not something you police officers have to worry about then those guys might have a chance to live so that was where i, I was i mean i went through all the active shooter training and, and uh, incident command on that and i was so impressed with your guys because it was just it was such a good coordination you know it's the evolution of the job too you know not only our job uh but uh, y'all's and how you are now implemented into a lot of things that we do, right. uh, and it's it's commendable. I, I wish I could remember when that was, but I think our chief actually came out and commended the firemen mm-hmm. for going out there. They put themselves in harm's way to, to provide right. cover for those officers to retreat back so we could provide right. medical attention to them. They went out there and grabbed them. I can't, can't remember the particulars on it, but, yeah, so, I mean, y'all's job is – it's evolved to where people probably don't even realize that they, they 70, don't really know. You get a seventy thousand pound fire truck, and you can you can you can create some havoc and, and block yeah. a view or so. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the aggression against first responders is going beyond just aggression towards police now. Right. I mean, uh, right. it's it's going on to firefighters mm-hmm. too. Uh, we held a flower mound not that long ago. Uh, two like back to back days, they got shot at responding, mm-hmm. and that's up in Flower Mound. Right, not even a bad part of town. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I want, I want to get into, uh, I want to get into something that you're a big part of and it's, uh, it's really important to you is the honor guard. You bet. Um, a lot of, a lot of listeners don't understand what the honor guard does and, and the, uh, the history behind it and the, um, just the honor and, and respect you show the fallen. 
Can you describe what the honor guard is? Honor guard is, and what you, uh, what your role is, and the training you've had to do that. Our our main role is, you know, is to take care of our fallen, like you said, and it's uh, it's one of those things that the the train when I first uh, um, I actually got on the honor guard for uh, DFD before Todd died. There was a guy that had died on duty uh, named Chris Pham. And I remember going to his funeral, and I was seeing those honor guard guys. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize when there's a, a fallen police officer or a fallen firefighter, there's going to be honor guard people with them 24 hours a day until we put that person, you know, mm-hmm. in their final resting place. And that's round the clock. I mean, we in Dallas, we, uh, we'll bring guys out of service to help them stand, whether it's at the ME's office, at the funeral home, wherever it is, and they'll stand there. But uh, uh, I had seen that, and those guys looked exhausted. So – I got on the honor guard then. Well, being I was a family member of Todd Crodel, I couldn't participate with the honor guard activities at, at, during that funeral. So uh, fast forward to Stan Wilson. Well, you know, I played a role in that one. Um, and the thing I always like to tell people, because I went to a, a, a group of guys out of uh, uh, Clearwater, Florida, called the National Honor Guard Academy, and they, they work with police and fire, and I thought that was so neat that they did it that way because there's so many times, like um, – we were talking about Officer Smith and then the Dallas Five and stuff. I was at all those funerals. Uh, the Richardson police officer got shot. I was at that funeral, and we were there just to assist. But uh, when I went to that National Honor Guard Academy, um, we just we just learned to do so many things the right way and, and respectfully. And uh, one of the things that I always tell uh, guys, because I was, I was one of our uh, uh, event coordinators for our Honor Guard team, and I always tell them, look, when you when you go to a, a funeral that's a line of duty death funeral, I said, uh, you know, I'd always ask the guys, what's your role there? And they said, well, you know, we're there to take care of the family. And I go, no, your role there is to make sure that everybody understands all those all those spouses, all of those firefighters, all those family members sitting out there. They need to know that what if if something goes south with their officer, this is how they're going to be treated. And that was, and I can't tell you how many times that got across to guys. You know, a lot of times you talk about, well, you know, we're going to carry the flags in, we're going to carry the casket, or we're, you know, but, but when you talk about, you know, what your impact is going to be just by showing up and doing what you're doing. Um, and the thing I liked about uh, having the formal training um, with, with the National Honor Guard Academy and the way we did it was, was, was we, they literally walked us through scenarios. Uh, I remember we were, uh, the academy I went to, we actually did PT at 0600 in the morning. They had us out. It was a team-building thing. We all knew that. But about halfway through the week, they came in. They said, hey, we just had a police officer and a fireman get killed in an explosion downtown. Y'all get back to your hotel rooms, get cleaned up, show up in the classroom, and we've got to plan two funerals. Well, we walked in. Now, lucky or unlucky for me, I didn't, I'd already been involved in about nine funerals here in Dallas, uh, probably about 10 in Houston. So I had a lot of experience. So we walked in and then they just had uh, little information sheets and phone numbers. This is a family representative. This is a fire department representative. This is a police department representative. You guys need to plan a funeral. And by the end of the day, we were literally at a funeral home, loading caskets up onto a fire engine, police officer into a hearse. We were out at the cemetery and we were actually doing uh, all of the the stuff that you would do, and it, I mean, it was it was gut wrenching, you know, at some points because you you're sitting there thinking, man, this is for real. And then, you know, fast forward after that, um, we've had, gosh, uh, I guess since I've gotten on the honor guard, we've had it, well, probably more than that. We've probably had about eighteen, if you count all the cancer uh, guys that died, because most of them are being uh, classified as line of duty death injuries now. So, um, 
but it, it, it I think it's the the honor guard to me is one of the most uh, or it's the least talked about thing. Absolutely. But when the guys see you at at the the services, uh, they're kind of like, man, I don't know if you can if I could do what you you know what you're doing. What it's so rich in uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had uh, we were already recorded uh, Chief Jeremy Foy shout out. He ran the honor guard here in Dallas for like eight years, mm-hmm. and he was also over the honor guard whenever seven uh, seven happened. Right. And I was working for him at the time, and I had to see him drop everything mm-hmm. and take that yeah. on. And yeah. he talked in depth about that, mm-hmm. and it was really important for him to build that that unit up. And I I, I know I couldn't do that job, yeah, even good job too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thirteen <laughs> events in five days. Yeah. So, you know, it's little things that you don't even think about. Yeah, I, I was a uh, uh, one of the pallbearers on uh, one of the fallen marching with a casket is not the easiest thing to do. It's not. I mean, there's, there's technique that you, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. We were, we were out there practicing with, uh, cause it was a, a large man and it was, we had a bunch of 45 pound plates and in, in the casket to practice marching with a casket. Mm-hmm. And, and it is really difficult. And it's mm-hmm. really difficult when you have a, a ton of people staring at you. Right. Right. Hearing taps and, and all that. It's just uh pretty sombering. Yeah. We always tell, we always tell our guys on our honor guard that it doesn't matter what you're doing or where you're at. Somebody's going to be filming you. And so we tell our guys, you've got to be letter perfect every single step of the way. And I think the thing we've always found out is, is everybody is well-meaning at a line of duty death funeral, whether it's a police officer or a firefighter, uh, and everybody wants to help. Uh, but I think part of the role of the honor guard is just managing all that chaos. Cause you know, you've got chaplains, you've got chiefs and you grieving got, families. Yes, yeah. you got grieving family members and 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 you just got to got got to figure out a way to manage that. And I know one of the things that that we kind of do on our honor guard cuz you know that families they're going to have chiefs come out and visit and the chaplains in, in our fire department are going to stay with them, you know, most of the time. Uh but we always sneak them a, a business card of one of our guys on the honor guard and we always tell them say, "Hey, look, if something's not going the way you want it or if something's not getting done, you call us. Don't call any of those other. And, and it's not to yeah, sneak around it. behind it yeah. because we're the ones that are there. We're with your loved one 24 hours a day. There's going to be one of us there. And then uh, on top of that, we just, I mean, um, you know, and our, our honor guard does a lot of little flag details. We do some parades around town, St. Patrick's Day parade, you know, at, uh, on Greenville Avenue and stuff like that. And we always use that as practice moments. But our guys got to the point where they're so good, you know, they, they do a uniform inspection before every single thing they do. Uh, all of our guys go to that training, and, and we just make sure that we're spot on every single time. Thank you. Every Thank you for keeping time. that tradition alive. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's something that I don't – I mean, if you ever go uh, to one of these other cities, and, and like uh, I was just talking earlier about going to Colorado Springs for the International Firefighter Association Memorial up there, it is just unbelievable. What they can play. And plus, I'm man. I'm kind of a softy. You hear those bagpipes playing? Sure. Amazing Grace. I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Kicking that, the stomach. yeah. There's no one that can. Yeah. <laughs> stomach that. Yeah, I know you police officers like to shoot guns at funerals and all that stuff. Yeah. That always. That always. I always jump. <laughs> yeah. We do too. Uh, what kind of mental toll? Uh, pr- the preparation and actually going through a funeral or an event, especially a funeral, the mental toll on that. Oh gee, well you know it's it's funny when when you were saying that the uh, I don't know if y'all remember Scott Tanksley he was the he was a firefighter that got got knocked off the Clark Road Bridge out here off of 408 back in I believe that was 2014 and uh, I was one of the first ones that got to Methodist and uh, you know he was he had already been pronounced dead at that point his family had just showed up about the time I got there well we started doing uh, our you know watch by the door of his room and. Uh, 
Um, normally, when you have a funeral, uh, it'll take about five days from the time the incident happens until you have the funeral. So, you know, usually we can kind of figure, okay, if we can get through five days, we're good. Well, uh, his wife couldn't get all of their family in until uh, he, that was on, a, I believe that was on there on Sunday night or a Monday, and she couldn't get family in until the following Monday. So we had to go eight days. And uh, um, so, you know, I'm taking my overnight watches and, and coordinating the guys doing casket watch and stuff like that. Plus, we're taking care of the family. We're making funeral arrangements. We're going to rehearsals. We're teaching guys to load a casket onto a fire engine and all that stuff. Well, uh, we get through it all, and I, we're all exhausted. I think I had had 20 hours of sleep in eight days. And so uh, uh, didn't think a whole lot about it, but uh, I got back to the fire station. Uh, that was on a Monday. I got back to the fire station on Wednesday uh, was my next day to work. And in, in the fire department, uh, we do uh, blood pressures and EKGs every six months. Just kind of check out the guys. Well, when they took mine, I was in a heart arrhythmia called AFib. Mm. My heart was – and so the guys were like, we need to take you to the hospital. I said, hang on. I said, I feel fine. I said, I know. I said, let me call my doctor. So I called him, and, and first thing he said was, well, he says, you've been doing that funeral stuff this week, hadn't you? He said, okay, there's high stress. He says – what's your diet look like this week? And I said, well, I ate whatever crap they put in front of me. You know, it was just, if it was a McDonald's burger or whatever. And he goes, uh, did you drink any coffee this week? I said, 24 hours a day. I was drinking spark. I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah. It had literally thrown my body into, you know, could have been something critical. Uh, and, you know, the emotional side of it, luckily for us, um, whenever we have a line of duty uh, death, that's uh, our critical incident stress management team coming. That's a mandatory. So they're gonna they're going to uh, all the guys that were at that uh, incident. They'll they'll debrief them. Uh, any of the guys that were involved uh, in the funeral, they'll debrief them. And then we always take our honor guard and we debrief them as a unit. So uh, that side of it, I mean, to me, it was a little bit satisfying um, to be on the honor guard, especially during those, because you you know you're making a difference. Um, the emotional side of it, to me, during the incident is what's tough, uh, just trying to keep it together and making sure you're doing what's right for the family. Well, I appreciate you doing that because I've seen it firsthand, and um, it's a job that I don't think I couldn't do um, day in and day out. Oh, yeah. Most of those honor guards are volunteers. They, they have other jobs they do, and oh, yeah. that's, just a side, that's basically just a side uh, assignment. Right. All right, and – Four decades, almost four decades. Almost of, four. Yeah, almost four. You should have you should have caught it even forty. I don't know why you Man, left fire, so early. Fifty eight is not the age to be fighting yeah. firemen. <laughs> that's, that's why you throw the half on the thirty eight. That's, that's it. That's it. That's yeah, it. yeah. In all those decades of firefighting in a major city, what would you tell a young firefighter starting right now? What to what to do to prepare for the career, both physically and mentally? Wow, physically and mentally. Well, uh, on the mental side, I would I would say find somebody that you can talk to, because it's not a matter of of if you have a bad run, it's when we're starting to find out the you know the cumulative effect of these runs one after another after another is is piling up uh, on these guys. Um, talk to your spouse. I mean, um, don't make it a big secret what your job is. I mean, it's it's okay to talk to other people about it. Uh, you can still be tough and and cry a little bit. Uh, it's it's not it's not going to hurt you. Uh, that part of it. Um, the the big thing I would tell guys is if you'll just be a good person. You know that's that's the thing. Um, I was um, involved in an interview here a while back that uh, a guy asked me. He said if you could go back to the uh, the the forty year firefighter, if you could go back and tell the guy your first year, 
you know, you know, give him some advice. I, I still remember in that interview, I told him, I said, you know, I can teach you things to be a better firefighter, but if I don't teach you how to be a good person, it's, I failed. So it's one of those things where, you know, and, and y'all know this, if you go out on a call, um, there's things that are legal and then there's things that are right. You, you do the right thing. You're, you're I don't think you're, I, I never got in trouble. I mean, I had two letter of counseling in my entire career. Both of them got tossed out because it was a, a question on a medical deal. But I mean, I never had a, a letter of reprimand in my career. And that was, I always just thought to myself, if I do the right thing, everything's going to work out. And that's what I try to do. Um, I, one of the things I would tell the young guys is is get in there and learn your job top to bottom, sideways, up to every which way you can. Uh, because uh, you talked a while ago about what was it like getting off the, you know, the ambulance rotation. Well, when I got off, I was assigned to that truck company. Well, I'd always been on either an engine company or an ambulance company my whole career for the first 10 years of my career. Well, then all of a sudden I'm on a, a piece of equipment I'm not familiar with. So I go to my first fire as a truck company. Well, my job then was to go inside and pull ceiling down and make sure there's not fire in the attic, you know, breach walls and stuff like that. Man, I come out, I'm dirty, I'm smoked up, we're hot, sweaty, everything. I pull my face piece off and I look around and I said, hell, I don't know what to do now. So I had to go back and learn that different aspect of my job. And for the next five years, I would literally go out to that truck company and I would take chainsaws. I would take them completely apart. So I knew that piece of equipment inside and out, top to bottom. I mean, just I, I wanted to be so good at my job that if guys said, hey, how do we use this? And I wanted somebody to look around and say, where's Lindsay at? You, he, he knows. That's great advice. Yeah, and that's and and, I, and you know y'all are the same way as we are. That you know the older guys need to be teaching the younger guys, uh, not just because of the the practical aspect of knowing your job, but the experience of okay, this is why you're going to do this this way, and that's you know to me that's just invaluable. And I, I think the last probably ten years of my career that was the toughest part to, for me was backing off. You know when we got calls and say saying well I'm going to cut that car door open or I'm going to do this at that fire and instead of saying hey you young guy, you get up there and let me coach you on how to do this the right way. I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Oh, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for your service to the city of Dallas. Uh, almost four decades, uh, as I keep mentioning. Uh, yeah, uh, you keep throwing that out there. Hey, it's that, hard to feel old. That, <laughs> no, that's nothing to be ashamed of. No. Give your mind, body, and soul uh, that long to the city. Yeah. The, the city needs to do uh, appreciate you and what you've done thank you for continuing even you're, you're you've ended your career but you continue to help and educate and prevent and thank you well you know how we are i mean once you're a firefighter or police officer you're always that way and that was that was one of the funny things when i left i'm on the international firefighter association honor guard up there in colorado springs so i asked my chief i said hey i need to take my honor guard uniform with me i don't mind paying for it or whatever but i need to take it with me and he looked me dead in the eye and he says, he says, you can take it with you, but if, if something goes south in the fire department, you're coming back to hell. And I've been back for a line of duty death funeral since then. So uh, that's that's a cool part. I, I don't think I'll ever completely wash the firefighter, you know, stuff off of me, but uh, but it was it was time to go when I left. Well, service is in your blood. Yeah, really. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah thank so. you yeah. for your service. And uh, like Misty said, your continuous selfless acts, it's very obvious you have a uh, strong passion to help uh, it's also very obvious that you're driven to this career field for a reason oh yeah appreciate it yeah. and we're very grateful for your service I think so thank you yep hey brother hey.
sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. I'll never give up on you.